You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I, this, all, these are all rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work, work at all. It's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot smaller. In case you didn't know, I got T-Bone. He shattered the mold and all he does is win. All, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. I'm Chadwick Matlin, editor at 538.com. With me in the studio, it's Neil Statman Payne. Hi, Neil. Hello, Chad. Neil, welcome back to Hot Takedown. Welcome back yourself. I, you might have the longest streak of all of us, I think. we got to start taking, you know, like Cal Ripken style. Oh, I'm, a, I'm the Iron Man of not missing Hot Takedown yes, episodes. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, with us on the other line, an Iron Woman in her own right. ESPNW columnist and 530's senior roving Tim Tebow correspondent. <laughs> it's Kate Fagan. Hi, Kate. Hi, Chad. Don't forget that Neil missed that episode because he didn't do his taxes on time. Oh, shoot. That's right. Well, I, I technically was, I mean, I wasn't present, but I participated. Oh, you did? Yeah. You called in? I called in. That's right. Yeah, That's because right. how else would you know about me complaining about my tax situation? <laughs> You're right. I'm so, I, I, I'm proven wrong. Kate, where are we? Uh, yeah. Where are we talking to you from? I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. And uh, did you see Tim Tebow when he rolled through town the other night? Well, I read the local papers covering wall-to-wall coverage of Tim Tebow's appearance in Charleston. So I, f- I feel like I'm up to date on all things Tim Tebow. That's the kind of effort that we like to see from our hot senior roving. You got to do your homework, Tim Tebow correspondent on Tebow. On today's show, folks, we are going to talk about Tim Tebow, but only as the significant. Digit. Oh, what a what a shame! He doesn't merit inclusion before then. But he doesn't merit promotions. So we'll talk about that at the end of the show. Our main segment will be about the fracas, the flap between John McEnroe and Serena Williams. John McEnroe told NPR that Williams could not compete in the men's circuit. I think something like she would be ranked 700th in the men's circuit. And since then, a firestorm has erupted. We will engage not just with McEnroe's argument, but also with why these arguments about women versus men keep cropping up decade after decade, going probably all the way back to the battle of the sexes. But first, folks, let's talk about Russell Westbrook, the MVP of the NBA on Monday night. We're taping this on Tuesday. On Monday night, Russell Westbrook was named the MVP at one of those award ceremonies that I think all the leagues now do. This is not a thing 10 years ago, right? Yeah, no, especially not in the NBA where as recently as I think last year it was just sort of like a low-key press conference. They released them in little like bits at press conferences strung out across the playoffs and you have situations where the I remember Dirk Nowitzki winning the MVP like the day after the Mavs had been eliminated from the playoffs <laughs> in a crushing upset uh, kind of anti-climax. So but saving them all for after the playoffs seems like a pretty good idea. Kate, very quickly, where do you stand on league-specific award shows. I am not in favor of the NBA's move to award the MVP so many months after the regular season, but I will say that it has reframed my perspective on what I personally want out of an MVP because previously I was fine arguing with Russell Westbrook and and for Russell Westbrook or, or James Harden, and by the time the playoffs ended, I had abandoned who the MVP really should be. And now that they're giving it to Russell Westbrook and we've seen the whole playoffs play out, 
it does make more sense to me now that I should have given more thought to Steph Curry, actually even to Kevin Durant, certainly to Kawhi Leonard to some degree. So having these awards so late, so late to me actually changes my definition of what I want out of an MVP. But then again, the the criteria that the voters were using at the time didn't really even have the benefit of the hindsight of the playoffs and things like that that might cause you to different you know focus on different things and different players. So it is kind of like a weird like you have now the benefit of time passing and knowledge that the voters who casted their ballots in the past didn't have, and yet now you can kind of apply a different standard with the knowledge that you had. I wonder why we even have a regular season. An MVP in, in a certain way, like shouldn't we have a full season MVP that has both playoff and regular season components and weights the playoffs more and kind of is a holistic measurement well, of who had the best season? Especially as the NBA in particular moves to where the postseason is really the main event, right? Far more than the regular season is because you have more rest in the regular season, as we've covered on the show before, and we as we covered on the site at five thirty eight. It does seem to me like the it's an antiquated idea. The regular season MVP. It's almost like a very European soccer kind of thing. Neil, you're totally right in that I used the playoffs in the NBA finals and everything that happened within them to retroactively assess who I think should have won MVP. But it does hold true that a lot of the guys we were talking about in our episode assessing who should win MVP, guys like LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, Steph Curry, we didn't talk as much about Kevin Durant, but we knew in that moment that they were great players on great teams who perhaps are being overshadowed by the the guys putting up huge numbers. And I think because of the award show being so late and being able to be given that time before the award being handed out, I will going forward take a, more into account that it, that feeling that I'm looking at a great player on a great team, and I think I'll give that more value going forward. I think that's probably fair. I mean, it would cut against Westbrook because he's been sort of out of sight, out of mind for so long, but maybe that is for the best, and maybe even if we can't make the MVP count over the whole season, we can kind of project forward and think about you know giving more weight to the, to the players that are going to be, in our opinion at least, or what seem to be, according to the indicators, around for the long haul of the playoffs instead of early exits. Yeah, quickly, my thoughts have sort of shifted as, as well on, on Westbrook, but I think in a different way uh, since we've talked about it. Originally, I had said something to the effect of, well, I don't think Westbrook is the MVP because his team is so bad. That's what it, that is what it has enabled him to be so good but I think that shifted a bit in the sense that there were lots of bad teams and not any other team that had a Westbrook running around doing what he did I do think though that to Kate's point the playoffs have shown me that we have some we have the scoring title for example to show individual achievement MVP I'm not well, sure in is one what particular yes, area absolutely but that's essentially what MVPs often come down to. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe we should come up with some kind of just like all-encompassing stat, uh, you know, stuffing metric that should, you know, n- not call it the MVP anymore. Just call it like the most uh, statistically accomplished player. Like, I don't know what the what the title well, for it would be. That's an assignment for you. I know. For another stat school. Yeah. Or no, an uh, assignment for our listeners to come up with a new acronym. You want an acronym before Rebranding you Rebranding the MVP. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, to be just about a formula. And then we have like the real MVP right. is sort of, is more of like a team plus player Postseason, so holistic right. over the whole course of the, the playoffs. At 538.com, that's where yeah. you can reach Neil with your new MVP 
criteria and acronyms. All right, let's leave it there and get to our main segment for today. We're talking about male players, but there is, of course, uh, wonderful female players. Let's talk about Serena Williams. You say she is the best female player in the world in the book. Best female player ever, no question. Uh, Some wouldn't qualify it. Uh, Some would say she's the best player in the world. Why qualify it? Oh, uh, she's not, you mean the best player in the world, period? Yeah, best tennis player in the world. You know, why why say female player? Well, because if she was a, if she played the men's circuit, she'd be like 700 in the world. You think so? Yeah. That doesn't mean I don't think Serena's like an incredible player. I do. But there's, you know, the reality of uh, what, what would happen on a given day, a Serena could beat some some players, I believe, because she's so incredibly strong mentally. But if she had to just, just play the circuit, the men's circuit, that would be an entirely different story. Um, so maybe at some point a, a women's tennis player, you know, can be better than a men, anybody. I mean, I just I haven't seen it in any other sport, and I haven't seen it in tennis. And I, I suppose anything's possible at some stage. That was John McEnroe talking about Serena Williams' career to Lulu Garcia-Navarro on NPR. So real quick, before we get into this sort of hot take argument that McEnroe has launched some of the chattering class on, let's recap Serena Williams' accomplishments. 23 Grand Slam singles titles, 14 doubles Grand Slam titles, two mixed doubles titles in Grand Slam events, 10 Grand Slams since Serena has turned 30 years old, one of those Grand Slams while she's been pregnant. She's won the most Grand Slam matches ever by a tennis player of either gender. So Serena Williams responded to McEnroe's comments and said, Dear John, I adore and respect you, but please, please keep me out of your statements that are not factually based. I've never played anyone ranked, quote, there. I assume that's the men's circuit. Uh, This is me talking now. Back to Serena. Nor do I have time. Respect me and my privacy as I'm trying to have a baby. Good day, sir. Since then, McEnroe has declined to apologize when asked on a CBS morning show and compared the hypothetical situation that he was proposing and responding to to when an older guy like him is asked how he'd do against Serena, which he is saying is, I guess, something he's, he's offered a lot. And real quick, last thing I'll say, then I'll finally turn to Kate and Neil. In the past, McEnroe has seemed to contradict what he said to NPR. McEnroe has said that Serena is, quote, arguably the greatest athlete of the last 100 years and, quote, the greatest player to ever play the game. So, Kate, what do you make of this debate in particular? And then later, let's broaden now to talk about these type of debates overall. I think this debate in particular leaves me torn because in tennis and other women's sports, we are often and sometimes female athletes are the ones who want to prove themselves in the field of play against men. I mean, we've certainly seen it in golf and we've certainly seen it in tennis with the battle of the sexes. And the reason that female athletes do want to compare themselves to male athletes is because that's where the massive spotlight is. And so we have at times seen a woman pursue that competition because of the upside for them. Now, and this is a case where it's almost a kind of reverse in that John McEnroe is being asked how Serena might perform, which is a different case entirely. And I'm kind of left with the same confusion that I, and, and, and this is the comparison I'll make, like when we had all the discussions about whether the Golden State Warriors of 2017 could beat the Chicago Bulls, it's always a discussion of what variables are at play. 
we want to know, will they have the same nutrition? Will they have the same coming of age? And will they have the same training and all of these different factors? And yet when we talk about female athletes in regards to, to male athletes and whether Serena could be in the top whatever for men, whoever wants to have that argument, it never seems as if there's there's an understanding of all of the different factors that have been at play for Serena from day one for being a female athlete and not a male athlete because there's two very different trajectories within our society. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, my first reaction when I heard this was just that, like, what is the point? I'm so over these conversations or discussions or whatever because it's just so pointless. I mean, we know that there are certain physical characteristics that, you know, lend themselves to sports, especially the sports that we tend to talk about. And we'll probably talk about this later. Like the reason why we talk about these sports is because men have traditionally excelled at them or that, you know, they're tailored to whatever men are good at athletically. And so, you know, that playing field is sort of stacked against women. And, you know, there are biological factors and and we all know that. So like, what is even the point of trying to kind of say oh well Serena Williams would be you know whatever ranking in the world can't we just appreciate what she's done you know within her competition and and uh, you know kind of uh, just enjoy that like why does everything have to come down to this comparison at the end of the day this concept of greatness within sports seems like it always boils down to like one-on-one or team versus team who could beat whom and it never seems when it when we're discussing female athletes specifically that we would even believe that Serena could be the greatest of all time when you just look at Serena and how she's dominated her competition in a day and age when the technology and the advancements are at their high, the, the most progressive they've ever been within her sport and yet she's dominating it in a really profound way perhaps that solely will make her the greatest tenor, tennis player of all time because it's something unlike we've ever seen. It doesn't necessarily have to be that I think Serena Williams would beat Rafael Nadal or Roger Federer. It can just be that she's done something so profound on her side that it separates herself. But that never seems to be the case in sports because we're so obsessed with like one-on-one and who could beat who and hypotheticals. Like that's what drives the sports the sports talk machine is all of these hypotheticals that we'll never be able to answer. Yeah. And, and even uh, within those, you know, that climate, we, we do give certain passes, you know, for instance, like Babe Ruth, we, we consider him almost universally to be the greatest baseball player of all time. And we don't ever really, you know, uh, most of the time, at least we don't entertain all of the different things of like, well, what if Babe Ruth played today? Isn't it possible that he could just be sort of a, you know, a power hitting, but low batting average, strike out a lot you know slow like would would he not be adam dunn would he not be (laughs) ryan howard you know but uh but instead we like hardly ever entertain that because it seems so blasphemous to to make that comparison yet we you know seem to have no problem and i realize that this is sexism in in a nutshell right is we don't have any problems with taking the greatest female athletes and instead of letting them play against the people and and the comparison being the people that they played against in their own era and their own competition we we love to take them out of that bubble and put them into the grander world in ways that we don't always do with male athletes. So, Neil, let me challenge you a little bit because you have made a career of essentially creating statistical comparisons between people outside of the bubbles that (laughs) players play. And so and so and so I'm curious because when the Warriors won, for example, you wrote a piece for 538 trying to show who is the best team of all time across sport using ELO rating, a standardized, standardized method. 
And so, but I'm not, I'm not saying it's the same thing, but I'm just trying to understand, like, for you, who's someone who, who uses statistics to draw comparisons of greatness, where does the line start? Where is the line between what's responsible to do with that and when it bridges into what I'm hearing you say, which is that it's irresponsible to do it cross-gender within tennis? Well, I mean, I think that story, uh, and, and you know this as well as I do, that you know sometimes for these stories it's about the, the kind of fun uh, more than the rigor of it. So, for instance, using the ELO ratings, do I think that the you know you could make a comparison between the 1939 New York Yankees and the Golden State Warriors and that that means anything? No, but it's like a silly thing that you can do with numbers. And when, I think when it's like lighthearted and in the spirit of like, you know, tongue in cheek and, and we're doing this because it's cool and it's statsy and we can, that's fine. I think when you're using it to make some kind of point that's grounded in sexism or, you know, some, you know, just a, a mean spirited attitude, I think that's where it stops making sense. And also, I don't think we have great evidence. You know, I know that the average serve speed, for instance, for women's tennis players at, at the high levels is about 15 miles per hour slower than for women. But for women like Serena Williams, who's one of the hardest hitters, she actually can hit the ball harder than, you know, some of the, uh, not just some of the slowest hitting men, but on occasion, you know, men that we would, like Roger Federer has hit, you know, there was a Slate article about how, you know, Serena Williams' fastest serve at various events was faster than Roger Federer's fastest serve at the occasional event. So it doesn't happen all the time, but it's not as much of a difference as maybe it's, you know, made out to be like, for instance, in, in other sports. And so, you know, we don't know what would happen. I think the 700th rating, here's, here's, an, here's a, a way that you can tell that McEnroe might have been a little bit, you know, wacky in, in his estimation uh, without even having to take the sexist bits into account is that he estimated that he himself, if he was playing tennis today, would rank, what was it, 1200th or something like that in the world at, at uh, you know, in his 60s uh, right now. So I, I think we can see from that that McEnroe is making like really kind of crazy, unfounded, uh, he's 58, by the way, assumptions about his own game. And so why would we not think that his assumptions about whether Serena would translate would be equally, you know, kind of just pulled out of his you know where? Neil, I like your point about when we usually try and compare generations or we pull athletes out of context to see how they would fare in other time periods or in other incarnations of their career, it's usually in an attempt to prove their greatness or to in some way contextualize their stardom and their uh, perch atop whatever historical discussion we're having. And it's very rarely in an effort to embarrass them. Right. (laughs) And that point where we're actually not taking Serena and maybe using statistics to analyze how she compares across eras, which I think we've done before on an episode of Hot Takedown to like we have, show yeah. whether she has a, a, a perfect com- a conversation that we've had is whether she has good competition in the last decade for women's tennis, or as some people have said, maybe it, there hasn't been the kind of female talent in previous generations like with Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova, et cetera. And so we've analyzed Serena within her context to try and give some rounding to the numbers and to how we think of her. But in a, to use those numbers in an effort to like demean her and embarrass her seems like an odd way to use statistics, unless we're just trying to contextualize like legitimately Serena Williams, would she be a top 200 male player? But then we've already had the conversation of 
why do we need that information? Because that's a hypothetical that we're never going to see. So, Kate, let me ask you then, why do so many conversations around women's sports continue to be brought back in a comparison to men? Is this basically like a sports version of the male gaze, which is a gaze towards greatness that is that is designed around the male attributes of greatness? Is it is it a, is it a sort of question of that the sports reward accomplishment in a way that's geared towards men over women and so there's like something about the inferiority of women to men that that makes some hot takers feel good like why i feel like we have one of these arguments basically a year yeah that sort of blows up in somebody's face and so why why does it keep coming back and i'm reminded just to run my question on a little longer that you at one point was were engaging or thinking about an internet commenter who sort of had suggested well i'm sure the average high school male senior could beat the a women's college basketball team, for example. Yeah. And, and I think in that particular example, and I think that's sort of just a myth that's out there whenever anyone wants to dismiss the WNBA, women's sports is in that catch 22 in that if it entertains the conversation, if you want to prove it or disprove it, then it, then the reaction is that like you're stooping to the level of sexism. And that, like the fact that you even felt you needed to disprove that proves some level of insecurity, which is, a place that women's sports often gets put. And so then it ignores the conversation. And I think to answer your first question, I think in my most charitable assessment of why these comparisons happen, it's true curiosity. Um, That's the most charitable interpretation is that sports fans really do want to know because maybe when they see Serena dominate grand slams, they just have a curiosity of like what that would look like if she were up against certain male athletes on the tennis circuit. I mean, I think we think this way when we make jokes about, hey, let's put an average person in the swim lane at the Olympics to truly understand the greatness that we're seeing. And so I think the human mind just has a propensity to want to see the relativity of everything and compare everything. And so I think in in my charitable assessment of that, I think most most people are asking from a curious standpoint. And then I think there are there's a good chunk of people who think they know the answer already to where Serena ranks compared to men, and they use it as clearly a dismissive tactic. Like, oh, yeah, you think Serena's great? She probably wouldn't even be a top 1,000 men's player. And, and I think from that negative spirit is where the frustration comes because I think it's less in tennis and more in women's team sports that you see it come with more of like a derisive, meant-to-shame-women's-sports point of view. But I think with Serena, there is a chunk of people, and you guys correct me if you think I'm wrong, that there's a curiosity there about where she might rank. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, you know, because she's been so dominant against her fellow female competitors that it is kind of natural. You know, you don't have to be trying to kind of prove a point to be wondering or curious about how that would translate. But I mean, it also I think all of this comes down to the fact that most women's sports are sort of seen as this like distaff version of men's sports that you're always going to be able to kind of make the comparison to the, you know, the quote unquote real version. You know what I mean? Like there's always going to be the the same sport being played by men and in many cases, you know, just athletically superior people. And so it's it's difficult to kind of get away, I think, from that. That's sort of like a curse that, that women's sports just has unless you 
open up new sport. You know, if there were a new sport that was invented just out of the ether and it was only played by women, I do wonder, uh, you know, putting aside whether or not you would be able to get popularity for it or, you know, get funding for it or anything like that, it would avoid the comparisons that have always come up to men's sports if it was a sport that men just didn't play. Okay, I think we should leave it there. I, it seems as though we're, we're all in agreement that the sort of the way we are trying to evaluate greatness in general in sports it works best when we're evaluating apples to apples, basically, and, and sticking within the universe of discourse that the greatness was proved within. And that the moment that you start to bleed outside of that or try and transfer that greatness outside of it is where you get into trouble statistically and culturally, essentially. Right. And at least have like some statistical backing if you're going to, going to try to take someone outside of their the competition that they played in and transfer them somewhere else this is just based on what McEnroe said was based on nothing right all right let's uh let's leave it there and get to our final segment it's the significant digit when a telling number from the world of sports is brought to us neil i think you you come toting a sig dig today <laughs> Yes, that is correct. Our uh, our favorite single A base- baseball player, although um, your favorite Neil, your favorite. <laughs> yeah, long time he... listeners will remember perhaps Neil's most animated and epic rant. Rant, which was uh... about Tim Tebow's not being someone who deserved to be employed by any professional baseball team at any level. Right, and here he is, Neil, still employed. Yes, uh, in fact, he's he's failing upward as as we published a story by our colleague Rob Arthur today, and in that story, uh, Rob found that so the SIGDIG is four percent. That is the uh, percentile of seasons by a uh, single-A baseball player since 2005 that Tim Tebow's season is currently in. He was in the worst four percent of single-A baseball player seasons. And typically that does not get one promoted out of low A and to where he was promoted earlier in the week. Uh, In fact, only 17 corner outfielders played as poorly as Tebow. This is in the entire universe of uh, single-A ball going back to 2005 and still managed to get promoted in the same year. So you could say like those 17 other players, I'm presuming that excludes Tebow, they weren't there because of PR stunts. And so you could maybe say, oh, well, you know, uh, maybe their GM also said they saw something in the exit velocity <laughs> and, and and the plate patience that, that caused them to be promoted. But I think, you know, if we're kind of looking for the simplest explanation uh, as to why this guy who's OPS, if you, uh, if you took it to the major leagues and translated it based on how he's done against the competition that he did, it would translate to a 465 uh, OPS. And he also would be 14 <laughs> runs below average in 44 games in left field that it's more of a of a PR stunt for a very famous uh, minor league player uh, who doesn't happen to be very uh, effective at playing baseball but uh, it should be interesting to see how far he rises and whether he will ever merit such rises. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you need more information from your Tebow Southern correspondent about the PR stunt nature of the of the Tebow promotion. But here in Charleston, right, he just played at the River Dogs, which is the local minor league team, and it sold out all the all of his games and all of the discussion around town was like how his promotion now to Florida, which obviously is where he played college football was going to then help the attendance at 
the the Florida minor league team because the one he's coming from had already reached its attendance quotas and they were already past what they had sold the previous year. So those were the stories that were in the local paper here after Tim Tebow passed their town. But who are these people that are coming out to see a guy hit 220 and play terrible it's defense? It's not about that, Neil. You mean they're 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 coming out to see a famous yeah. human? That's who Come they're on. coming out. They just to want see. to be in the proximity that's like, that's of like, Tebow. Yes. Yeah, it's like asking like who are the people who go to professional wrestling arenas? Like you're going to see the the characters and the stories and the personas. And yeah, the, but and the baseball is not scripted. I mean, yeah, if we could ma- if we could script just the Tebow game so that he had these you know magical outcomes every time he came to the plate, that would be one thing, and you know we could create Who's wonderful drama around happened. that. They just well, want to see a famous though. person. <laughs> they just want to look at a famous person in the gawk, on deck circle. That's gawk all at it Tebow is. As Do you he, not uh... care about celebrity, Neil? No, oh, I don't okay. care. Well, that's he cares Neil, about numbers. Okay. <laughs> if you had great seats to the to, let's say the Mets, okay, before Tim Tebow's on the team, yeah, right, and you saw people up close and personal. And that saw their faces and understood how they moved differently than you do from the cheap seats. That's, that would have some thrill for you. Yeah, but I okay. mean, that would be intrinsically tied to sort of how good they are at, at baseball, though. Okay, That's but, kind okay, of fine. the difference so for me. So let me take this into a different scenario. Yeah. I was walking by the Barclays Center on, on Sunday, and people were filing out the Barclays Center because they had just seen the Big Three League, which is this three-on-three oh, yes. half-court basketball with the, with the older Kwame Brown. Players. Oh, if I pass Kwame Brown on the street, boy, I tell you, I would lose <laughs> it. There was a buzz in the crosswalk because they got to see Iverson play. Okay, now now I'm beginning to understand. And Tebow Iverson, was once good in Florida. Allen Iverson at age whatever he is, 50, right. <laughs> nearing 50 at least, uh, would would have uh, an, an impact on, on how I felt. I would like to see Iverson right. close. So, so I now imagine that. that you grew up, instead of with Allen Iverson, seeing Tim Tebow lead basically miracles on the football field at Florida. Okay. Ignore Denver Fair for a second. Enough. Miracles. Yeah. Miracles. miracles. He gives the great speech, the famous speech. You're telling me that for 10 bucks you wouldn't go out to Port St. Lucie if you lived in the 45-mile radius? And just 45 to say, is pushing just to say it, hey but... to Tim? <laughs> Whew. I, I just I, I love talking about Tim. All right. that's uh, That'll do it for this week's show before Neil murders me for uh, <laughs> Comparing Iverson to for... Tebow. <laughs> uh, Kate Fagan, thanks for uh, calling in chatting sports. Thanks, Chad. Neil Payne, always a pleasure. Thank you, Chad. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson. Alice Wilder is our intern. We got production assistance from Tony Chow and Martin Onebu. You can email us at podcast538.com. We would love to hear what you think. Find us on your favorite podcasting app. We're on iTunes, of course, as well. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. While you're there, be sure to review and or rate the show. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chad Matlin. Talk to you next time.